District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. Welcome to episode 165 of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. I hope you guys had a great weekend full of time outdoors, soaking in some sunshine and nature. I had a great time fishing and exploring the outdoors, went to go moral mushroom hunting and had no success, still enjoyed time outdoors. That brings me to our guest today. We have Travis Thompson of Cast and Blast Florida. He's one of the co-hosts of that podcast and a Florida waterfall and fishing guide too. And Travis is a return guest. He previously came on to share a story, but I wanted him to come on the podcast since we didn't get time to record when I was down in Florida. Travis was really instrumental in connecting me to a lot of these different stakeholders for the different Everglades pieces I've been working on, and I'm grateful to him. And we talked about Piney Point, what is happening in Tampa Bay, water quality issues, and he sounded off on a recent victory he had for sportsmen and women relating to an issue down there about access. So we talk a great deal of different topics, and I want to reintroduce my audience to Travis Thompson. So here is our chat with Travis Thompson. Travis, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Always glad to be on District of Conservation. Like one of one of my podcasts that I listen to on a regular basis. You're very sweet. Thank you. I, I listen to your guys' too. It's always fun. I, I think you were our first guest we ever had on our podcast like three or four years ago. So, so. yeah, we go way back. Yeah, we go way back. <laughs> and a wonderful friendship has bloomed since that time. And we got to catch yeah. up actually on my birthday a few weeks ago, and that was a lot of fun. I was sad you couldn't join us for some of the festivities. But when you promised me that I would be shown, like, a place unimaginable to kind of like the human eye when it came to conservation and just the work and different activities happening and just the ecosystem in the Everglades, you guys were really, you and Mike were very, very on cue for what I was in store for. It was amazing, and I learned so much. It, it's, a, it's a truly special place. You saw a, a, a sliver of it, which is what's crazy is, like, how big it is and how expansive it is. Uh, and I actually just finished a, a few minutes ago listening to your, uh, your part two on Florida from last week with Nyla and Miss Betty Osceola. And then I also listened to the podcast you did with, with uh, my good friends, Matt Pierce and Brad Ferris, um, yes. the, the ranchers that, that do such a good job down there. It's a beautiful place. Though. Yeah. Madison and I, who you got to meet at dinner, we had a blast. She's like, I want to go back those cowboys and everyone in all these glades. And we're so nice. And she had no idea being a Floridian that existed. Yeah. That's the thing about Florida though, is, and, and I spend more time in more places around Florida. Like, 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 so someone like our friend, Mike, we keep talking about it. Mike Elfenbein is his name. And I call him kind of one of the guardians of the other glades. He, he's a sportsman, a hunter, a fisherman, um, you know, multi-generational Floridian, like most of the people in this conversation are. And uh, so but Mike focuses a lot on the South Florida stuff and I, I move around the state. And so it's weird it's kind of interesting to see it from Madison's perspective because she also lives in a beautiful part of the world. Like up, she's from Jacksonville, which is kind of up in Northeast Florida, which has, you know, obviously the city, 
but you go right outside of it. You've got the St. John's River that runs through it, but you've got beautiful salt marshes. And so it's just a different terrain. Florida's got different terrain everywhere you go. You can go to the Panhandle, you can go to Ocala, you can go to the National Forest, you can go to the Everglades, you can go to the beaches. It's just, it's a neat state because there's so much to offer. And I love all of it. As you should being a proud Floridian. I mean, you should very much love the state you live in and you want to safeguard it and protect it for future generations. And I remember all of you and, and a lot of your colleagues had explained to me and communicated throughout our trip, whether it was through the airboat with Marshall Jones or just talking to Brad Ferris or Matt Pierce and just all the different key stakeholders, that this isn't just the Everglades National Park. I think people conflate park with the greater Everglades ecosystem. And I kind of was aware of that to make the distinction, but I think we can talk more about this when it comes to what Everglades restoration conservation efforts are, but it's really important. Something I want to communicate to people through bringing you on and kind of reiterate is that this place, having seen it firsthand, having heard about it from you and from Mike and others, that it's such a vast territory and it stretches well beyond the Everglades National Park. And why is it so important to make that distinction, you think? Well, I think it's important because uh, the whole system, uh, you've been to ICAST before, Gabby. I think we saw each other at ICAST a couple of years ago. I, I can't remember if we were there the same year. I, I, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But ICAST is in Orlando every year, and it's always ironic to me that we have all these people that work in the outdoors industry, and they're at this big fishing show. And like a block from there is Shingle Creek, which is the start to, to a traditional Floridian. That's the start of the greater Everglades ecosystem. Like you, can, you can literally get in your car, drive around the corner, and there's a sign that says something to that effect on the side of the road. And that little creek is wild, but it's getting inflows and nutrient loads from all the development that goes on around it. Uh, I was listening to, to your conversation with Brad Ferris and you mentioned how quickly the water gets into the system. You know, it's not getting filtered by the ground anymore. It's not slowed in runoff. Um, so we're just putting all these nutrients into these systems and it goes, you know, it goes there and it goes through the, we call it the K-Call or the Kissimmee chain of lakes, the, the Toho, Kissimmee, it's the, uh, uh, Cypress, Hall, all these big kind of lakes that are up further in the system. And then it moves down the Kissimmee River. You've got Estapoga, which is another big lake, and, and Arbuckle Creek, and all that stuff kind of just feeds in fishy creek. All that stuff feeds into Lake Okeechobee. So people tend to think of Lake Okeechobee, and they think of the Everglades National Park. But really, this whole system is interconnected basically from the Orange County Convention Center to the, the, the bottom of the state. And mm -hmm. If you get too wrapped around, that's part of the reason I don't really love the term, the Everglades, even though I get it. Like, I, I grew up in Florida. I love the Everglades. I don't want that to come across wrong. But the whole thing is the Everglades. It's not just isolated to where you pay your fees to get into the park. It's, it's, this, whole, it's this whole system. And it's, it's a beautiful, wild, special place. Um, you know, we tell people all the time, you don't see Florida when you come to Disney World and, and Harry Potter World and, and, and Sea World and I've been to all those with my kids and stuff. I'm not knocking them. But the special part of Florida is when you get, as Brad has named his podcast, when you get between the beaches, when you get into the, the palmettos and the, and the woods and the ridge lines and the sandy soils, and it's just a special place, that whole Kissimmee River Valley. So it, if, we don't, if we don't address, I, I, know, I know you and I talked for a long time. 
I, I lean more conservative, obviously, in, in a lot of my political views. But if we don't address growth in our state in some kind of a smart way, um, a managed way, we're going to continue to outkick what our uh, what our system can handle. And that whole ecosystem, that whole southern South Florida ecosystem is just going to – I don't want to sound gloom and doom say it's going to collapse. I think we can fix it. I think we just have to be smart about it. We have to embrace things like conservation easements. We have to embrace things like public and private partnerships. We have to embrace – creative solutions to, to big problems. And um, I think that's a lot of what you've been illustrating the last week or so. It's a very complex situation. I mean, I know there are remedies to address, obviously, the water quality issues. And we've talked about that before, but I, I want to kind of turn your attention to, I mean, something related, obviously. We've talked about kind of population growth, how that contributes. And there are many factors you would you've told me that affects what happens in the Everglades and just everything that just whether it's toxic algae blooms or noxious weeds or other problems that come in, but something that has actually garnered a lot of national attention, I think even beyond some of the red tide issues that happened three, four years ago, is this piney point situation. Could you explain for my listeners what exactly is happening, the immediate threat related to it, and who is responsible truly or what has happened? Yeah, I'll, let me say this. I'm not an expert on any of those things, um, but I'll, I'll do my best to disentangle it. And I, I, I live, my house is in Polk County, Florida, which um, there's really five counties that kind of make up what we call Bone Valley. Polk, Hardy, DeSoto, Manatee. Uh, I think I'm missing one in there. But basically this area, this region of Florida is like one of the richest veins of phosphate in the world. So growing up, you, you were just in Florida, so you know it's a very flat country. Anyone that's been to Florida and gone to Disney World or anything, you drive down the road, there's no hills, there's no elevation. Um, so what they do is when they mine phosphate, as part of the waste of mining phosphate, they, there's, a, there's a byproduct. Again, I'm not a scientist. It's called phosphogypsum. And they build these things called gypsum stacks or gyp stacks or phosphogypsum stacks, however you want to phrase it. And... They're, for us down here, they're giant because you can see them a long way away. Um, yeah, I think, I think in Bartow, in the courthouse on the second floor, you can see the phosphate gypsum stack in Mulberry like eight miles away. That's a big deal for us down here because um, we have nothing of elevation. But when they build these stacks, what they do is then when they, when they create their slurry through the, the process of phosphate mining, um, the stacks that the, they'll, they'll basically think of them almost like a berm or a dike and there will be water left in it, remnant water. And over the course of mining, they, they kind of take care of this stuff. And um, we could, we could go way down a road of is phosphate mining good or not? I'm not going to, I'm not going to take a, a, a course on that. I'm just going to say this. Generally speaking, they've done a good job with managing their waste. However, they've had some spills in the past. Um, and forgive me if I say mosaic, there's been a number of phosphate companies in the state over my lifetime. Uh, when I was growing up, it was IMC Agrico was kind of the big phosphate company. I think mosaic acquired them. There was Mulberry Corp. There's just, there's been a number Borden, the milk company was in it for a long time. Um, there's just been a number of them, but they build these, these ponds essentially, and they use it to put water in. And we had one, I think. Mid-90s, I was out of high school when it happened, I'm pretty sure. 
we had one leak onto the Alpi River and, and we had a big fish kill. And the reason it increased the fish kill is uh, you mentioned algal blooms and stuff like that. What you're typically seeing load out of these is heavy um, nutrient loads. So, like, in some cases I've read, I'm not a scientist, but in some cases I've read up to 10 times or five times the nitrogen load or up to that many times the phosphorus load in the, in the water and slurry that comes out. You will see some people talk about radioactive materials. As I understand it from talking to some smart people, what's radioactive is the phosphogypsum stacks, not the water in it. So if that stack were to crumble and get mixed into that water, yes, you could have some kind of radioactive discharge. But as long as the stack stays standing, it's not radioactive. You're just worried really about the, the nutrient loads. So we had a spill in the 90s. Uh, there was another one from Piney Point, which I'm getting to. Piney Point, I think there was one around 2011, 2010, 11. There was a rip. They line these pools when they make them. They line them with like a, a plasticky, rubbery material. And this is all part of the plan when they go and do a, a phosphate dig. They, they, they plan out to, hey, this is how the pit's going to work, and this is how the, the gyp stacks are going to look, and this is how they're going to be engineered out. And they, they plan these liners and stuff. Well, and I don't quite understand what happened here. This is where we get into kind of like who should be responsible for this and, and this, that, and the other. A company called HRK Holdings owns the Piney Point plant. They've owned it about 15 years, 20 years. Um, so it is not the original company that mined it, that owns it now. So I'm guessing, I don't know anything about HRK Holdings. I know they are a holding company. They buy a lot of stuff speculatively. Uh, what has happened is the liner began to fail. It failed back in 2010, 11. There was some leak. It was fixed uh, at the direction, I think, of, of our state DEP. And once it was fixed, what they did is there's a port. If you were looking at this on a map, I mean, it ain't far from Piney Point, the holding ponds, the, the gyp stacks, to Tampa Bay, the south shore of Tampa Bay. And there's a port there, Port Manatee, which is a very, very, very big shipping port in Tampa. And so around 2011-12, they decided to dredge that port so they could accommodate bigger boats. When they dredged it, they took the dredge material and they put it into these holding ponds at Piney Point. So now you've got the, the old phosphate mining effluent. Well, I'm not sure if that's the right term, but that's what we're going to call it. You've now got the, the, the dredging material from Port Manatee put into there. You've got stormwater runoff, like, like rain, like stuff that happens. You know, it falls and lands on the jet stack and runs down in there. So you're going to get some nutrient loading there. So you've got this really um, mixed bag, and I can't speak to what they dredged out of Tampa Bay. I have no idea what that was, um, what kind of nutrients were sequestered down there, metals, that kind of thing. You'd need somebody way smarter than me to talk about it. But you basically put all this stuff into a stack that is this tall thing that holds, I think it's seven or 800 million gallons of water Ooh. in like a in like a 30 or 40 acre size lot. So I'm reading right now, it's a 70 foot stack. That's how tall the stacks are. So this is, this is not a giant expansive thing. It's a small, tall thing with a heavy volume of water. So I think we are out of the weeds now on uh, public safety. 
But at one point in the last week, uh, Governor DeSantis was talking about the concern if those gypsum stacks failed, DEP, Manatee County, they were talking about a 20-foot wall of water going through people's houses. Like they were evacuating jails. They were evacuating homes. They were evacuating. They literally were getting people out of there for fear of loss of home and life. So it's a very serious thing. It's a very tenuous thing. Um, obviously, it's a thing that we would not want on the landscape, but this is not a new thing. It's been around a long, long time. So not sure if I answered your question, but I tried to, I tried to give as much background on that as I could to be as clear as I could. Yeah, I think that's a comprehensive view. I was texting with my friend Demetrius, who I want you to take duck hunting at some point. I, I don't know if you guys were able to connect at some point, but he's in St. Pete with his wife. But I texted him. I'm like, Demetrius, are you close to Piney Point? And he told me he's 40 mile, 40 minutes away. So I was like, okay, you're a little far away. But I was like, I was worried, you know, because if, if the evacuations had to occur, like I know plenty right. of people – um, Amy Lockhart would have had to likely evacuate and some others maybe if it was really close to home for there. So I was a little worried for friends in the Tampa Bay area, of course, and, and maybe we still have to be worried. I'm not sure what the evacuation plans are, um, but there's a lot of media reports about it. And so so what do you think your state and, and the governor's office is going to do? Like, are they going to evacuate people? What are the next steps you think? Is it kind of like the situation with algae blooms or is it something far more uh dire where they need to take more measures so so yeah a, a couple of things here one i think the state has handled this about as well as they can um between our department of environmental protection our governor manatee county um i, I think we all want to blame somebody when something like this happens right like that's human mm -hmm. nature who's the scapegoat who are we going to blame on this um, and, and I think there will be plenty of time for that, but I think the state has done an appropriate response to this, uh, given the situation. The thing as a sportsman that none of us like to see is the discharge of nutrient-laden water into Tampa Bay. Um, now, I, I've said it, I think, three or four times since we've been talking. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a heavy Tampa Bay fisherman, although I fish that area right here where the discharges happened a, a billion times in my life. Um, you're looking at something where I think we don't know what we don't know, and we won't know for a while. I, I have heard people say this is the end of the world. This water is so nutrient-laden. It's going to get out there. It's going to kill everything in its path. Um, we had a similar spill in 2011, and it, and it was it was a really bad uh for, for the ecosystem, for, for the seagrass and stuff like that. I, I, I tend to, I, I buy that. I, I think, yeah, that's a valid position. Um, and I've seen a lot of groups, CCA Florida, Tampa Bay Waterkeeper, seen a lot of groups really monitoring that situation closely, keeping an eye on that, documenting it, seeing what happens. I think the other side of that is you could listen to some scientists that would say where this is located is closer to the mouth of Tampa Bay. Like it's on the south shore is what we call it but it's really not far from the Skyway on the south side of Tampa. And with tidal flush and everything else, you may see enough uh, kind of dis dis disbursement of the water and of the nutrient load to where you don't see as many negative effects. I don't think we know what we know right now. Um, you know, I'm talking to guys over there that are catching fish right now, like, like, we're, we're at the time we're recording this. It's been it's been draining, you know, over a week I think, and um, 
that there's guys that are still fishing that area and, and catching fish. So uh, don't believe it's don't believe it's the end of the world. I think it's a I think it's a bad thing. I think it's a thing everyone wishes we did not have to do. And I think I think to really answer your question, I think the governor, the legislator, the rulemakers are going to take a hard look at how we got to this situation. And I don't know that in Piney Point they can disentangle it because the original miner does mine owner doesn't own it. So the phosphate industry went away from there. This holding company bought it. They bought it really to hold the dredge material from Port Manatee. So who's responsible for that? I would think the holding company is. Again, I'm not a legal authority or anything else. But then you get into, well, they've declared bankruptcy and kind of been operating in that realm for quite some time. So what are we going to do, put them out of business, and then the state's going to have to run this thing that's kind of a mess of a thing anyway? I'm really not sure. I'm very interested to watch this out because you you, you pay attention to social media like I do and like you do. Everyone is the sky is falling, the sky is falling, very upset. I don't think that's the right approach. I think we need to um, apply pressure to our lawmakers. We don't like this. We don't find it acceptable. How can we prevent it from happening ever again? I think that's the, that's the right take on this. Taking a balanced approach is always good, of course. I think um, alarmism is never helpful. Obviously, it's a concern not downplaying the situation at all. But, yeah, it would be good to, to know information. I mean, outsiders like myself, like, I'm not going to scream through the rooftops. Like, I can't really do anything being from Virginia. It would look funny, for one. And, two, I don't know what information is coming out from the experts. So I want to wait to see what exactly happens before I share anything concrete about the situation. I think it's important to address, but I think I want to let things play out. I want to know if it's really as dire as it's being reported, and I want to see – and I think – Governor DeSantis is probably well-equipped to handle the situation. So I, I think they're very seriously taking a look at it to see what to do. And hopefully, yeah, all the answers to, to the different looming questions are answered. This is one of those situations where it's easy to play armchair quarterback. And again, this is a thing that we've had leaks from before. This is a thing that we put terrible stuff into from the dredging material. This is a thing that's been kind of in limbo for 25 years. 20 years. So it's really easy for us to say, oh my gosh, DEP screwed up. Well, yeah, but the guys that work at DEP today probably weren't even in college when this became, when it came onto the landscape. So I'm really, I try to take a pragmatic and measured approach to this conversation. Yes, we need to get it right. Yes, we need to fix it. Yes, I don't like nutrient-laden waters dumped into anything. Obviously, you've heard me talk about that. I, I mm-hmm. sit on the invasive plant a committee for the state, like I'm, I'm very involved in that discussion and nutrients are kind of the bane of that existence, but nutrients do exist in nature too. Um, I, I just think we have to be careful, take a pause, not the end of the world. And I will tell any of your listeners coming to Florida, reach out to your guys if you want to book a trip. Um, like I said, I don't guide in that area, but I know a lot of guys that do and they're freaking out a little bit now because with the media coverage, it's shutting their business down and they're catching fish. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a frustrating situation. Um, you know, we, who knows what the summer will hold? Red tide is not unheard of in the summer in Florida anyway. Um, nutrients will exacerbate that. But we're not there yet. So, so let's not, let's not uh, call this the end of the world until it's the end of the world. How about that? 
Let's talk about a sportsman victory that you recently had. Can you explain to my listeners what exactly that was? Uh, which one are you talking about? The one where you had help from NSSF and some of the others? Oh, absolutely. And, and actually, yeah. Gabby, you were, you were kind of the unsung hero on that whole situation because you, you oh, had so no. many connections. I, I, I texted <laughs> Gabby, and like the next day I had, I had phone calls from National Shooting Sports Foundation and, and with, with our mutual friend Trevor Santos and John Kulflisher with Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Cyrus Berry with Safari Club, and just uh, John Debney with, with Delta Waterfowl. So many people um, that I've heard their voices on your show and then uh, are, are, are seeing you talk to, and then next thing you know, they're helping us out with the thing. But yeah, we, what we had is, and I'll, I won't get way in the weeds on it. If you want to, if you want to dig into it, you can message me or. or Go check out Casa by Florida. We've talked about it a number of times on there. But I'll link there. It's a thing called a yeah. It's called a, it's called a restricted hunting area. And really, what this is about is, um, and this is Travis's perspective. I'm going to give you my opinion, and that's the only opinion you'll hear. But it's about kind of uh, coexistence of hunting and development. And in Florida, we don't have agriculture for waterfowl hunting like a lot of states do. Like you can't go to a cornfield because we don't have corn. You can't go to a rice field. We don't have rice. Like our agriculture is cattle and it's and it's citrus. So that doesn't hold waterfowl the way that some of like the other states where you think of duck hunting happens. Our duck hunting all happens on the lakes. And if you've ever flown into Florida, you know there's a bajillion of them. Well, everyone that moves to Florida, a thousand people a day, wants to live on those lakes. And so we're running into conflicts with hunters and homeowners. And what we've seen is more and more over time, a push politically for our agency. I'm not saying the agency is pushing, I'm saying there's been a political push for our agency, FWC, who I think highly of, to move towards making concessions for homeowners, regardless of where they develop those homes. Now, FWC has no jurisdiction over where development happens. And as duck hunters, we're concerned about this because we see almost every shoreline getting built out. And if that happens... I know that recently you talked about R3 with a number of people after the Meteor article. We did too. Um, mm-hmm. This is a this is a concerning entry point because it's an easy entry in Florida because water is everywhere. So everybody has a boat of some sort or a kayak. Duck hunting is a lot easier to enter than maybe deer hunting is where you got to go get a quota draw or something. And so for me, it becomes a concern from a hunter standpoint and from a hunter representation standpoint if we're doing anything to limit where that access is based on development. So my statement has been Florida has these great rules that the gun lobby helped create. Um, It's Florida statute 790. It basically says you can shoot a gun anywhere as long as you don't shoot anything you're not supposed to. I'm paraphrasing. It's written much more legally than that. But I can go into my backyard in a subdivision as long as I can safely discharge my firearm. Say I can shoot it safely into the ground or, or whatever. Um, I'm allowed to do that legally by state law. And so this rule that was proposed by FWC kind of stepped all over that and gave some more power to the homeowners and allowed a buffer zone created, which there's buffers in all the other states, spatial separation in all the other states. Uh, Our concern is just that that is going to continue to grow as well because it's not solving the problem. There's never been an incident in Florida of a waterfowl hunter harming a non-hunter. There is no recorded incidents of that ever. So we're creating a law based on exactly no incidents is ever happening. 
So it's theoretical. I think what it really boils down to is people don't like gunfire on on their lake on Saturday morning at six thirty. And I get that, but I don't really like them building a house on the lake that I've used for, you know, my family's used for a hundred years. So our win was we were able to really get the agency to stop and pause on this rule because they were ready to go through with it. And we put together, um, you've had Bill Cooksey on. Bill Cooksey helped us with Fantasy Paradise, the National Wildlife Federation. All the aforementioned guys got on board with this. And we created a sign-on letter asking the state to really take a look at another approach to this. And um, I'm not sure what that outcome will be. I do know that in the proposal for the draft rule, we had a huge showing at the, at the commission meetings. It was online through a Zoom call. Huge pushback, huge turnout from those groups. And uh, they have decided it was going to be discussed in May. They don't have their ducks in a row to do it in May, so now they're pushing it back to August. And I think the longer it takes, the more time it gives us to get it right. So it was a big victory for the sportsman communities because the biggest threat to us and this may dovetail into your R3 stuff, the biggest threat to us is it's, it's laughable to me when a state like Montana talks about R3 and they've got, I forget, 30% of their population hunts. Mm-hmm. In Florida, we have 1% of our population buys a hunting license. And it, that percentage gets lower every year based on uh, migration. So we representatively as a stakeholder group are very, very small. And then when you get into waterfowl, I think we sold 14,000, 12,000 waterfowl licenses last year. In a state with 21 and a half million people, we are nothing. Like we are a, a blip on the radar. So it's really important whenever we can join together and win some of these victories and, and get some movement in our direction. Um, because the state's going to grow. We all know that. We recognize that. We wanted to grow in tandem with hunters, not in a way that, that diminishes hunting on the landscape. So huge victory. We were really proud of it. Yeah, you guys did a tremendous job with that, and I was really happy when you told me it came to fruition. But I would think with Florida booming and growing, of course, you'd think there would be more opportunities to to draw awareness to the hunting opportunities. I remember you explained to us at dinner at Lightseas, which is fantastic. I really love that place in Okeechobee. You, you explained that, yeah, hunters don't really have a super big seat at the table. I think maybe we do in Virginia. We're a little different, obviously. And like you said, in Montana, they have probably more opportunities. Every state is different. But I would think maybe because Florida is more known as a fishing state, but I think you guys do have opportunities to raise awareness, to have R3 efforts, to get people. I would think a lot of the transplants moving do enjoy some sort of hunting and fishing, but maybe I'm not familiar entirely with who is moving to the state. It's a little bit of, just like this RHA rule we were talking about, it was a very cumbersome rule. Um, it required municipalities to hold meetings. FWC didn't hold the meetings. There were signs put up, but they had to be posted at certain intervals. And what really happens in Florida, I think, is with the best intentions to provide the most opportunities or the best opportunities, we end up overcomplicating it. And sometimes I think the hunting community, we don't do a good job of making it harder for us so it's easier for them. And by them, I mean the people that we want to get into it. And this is one of those situations wherein I get messages all the time. In fact, we run programs every year to do R3. I'm going to be wrong, so forgive me if I've said this differently somewhere else. I think over the last five years, 155 people killed their first duck on my boat. So we really focus in on trying to get people to come 
um, experience hunting in Florida, waterfowl hunting. Uh, we have some different species we're able to hunt and stuff too. But it's the number one thing I hear people say when they, when they get out there is like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. I was just so worried about doing something illegal. I was so what? fearful of, of doing something illegal and not, be, not knowing where I could or couldn't hunt, not knowing what I could or couldn't shoot. And it, when you think about it really in perspective, particularly from waterfowl, where you got, you know, in Florida, I think we have 25 species you could kill of waterfowl in a year. Uh, that's not counting your coots and your rails and stuff. Yeah, that's intimidating for a newcomer because they're worried they don't know how many of what they can kill. And yeah, there's books out there, there's data out there, but you got to really, really, really want to go after it to get that. And a lot of us grew up in families where we were blessed to have somebody that took us out there, an uncle, a dad, a grandfather, whatever. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's kind of dying out, I hate to say. Um, so we've got to be better and more intentional and more inviting about our outdoors and our wild Florida because particularly to, I would think, your audience, a lot of folks out of state, when they think of Florida, they think Disney World, they think, they think the beach, they think SeaWorld. And for us in Florida, our, our, our multi-generational Floridians and, and, and folks that really care about the wild places, we need more people sitting at the table with us saying, yeah, this is important. Uh, being able to go quail hunting, being able to go dove hunting, being able to snipe hunt, which is a, it's a little bird. I know it's a joke in a lot of the country, but we, we, I think Florida kills more snipe than any other state in the country. Um, just a, it's, a, it's a very unique place that takes a little bit of a lift to get into. But once you get into it, it's not really that hard. I, I would almost, uh, I'd almost equate it to flat fishing. Used to, no one knew how to flat fish. And Florida Sportsman kind of helped normalize that. And CCA Florida kind of helped normalize that. And now everybody has a boat and everybody can go catch snook and trout and reds. Used to, that wasn't the way. And I think we need to normalize hunting a little bit more in our state to get more people into the woods. And the other thing I think we do a bad job of is we tend to only talk about big game. So in Florida, for us, that's hogs and that's deer. Um, and those are really the most limited opportunities when you think about it. It's way easier to take someone to go shoot wood ducks on a Saturday morning than it is for me to get a quota permit, take them into public land, teach them how to do this. Like the mentoring process is much, much heavier on a deer hunt than it is on a duck hunt. So we, we just got to be creative about how we do it. But we, you know, we have a lot of public land in Florida. I think 30% of the state is public land. Don't hold me to that number, but that's close. But we only have hunting access on like 7% of that. So we have a lot of great habitats that we don't have access to hunt on, or we have very limited opportunity to hunt on, which is a thing that I think more sportsmen at the table could influence and change in a positive way. Maybe some of the filmmakers and creatives have to focus their efforts on Florida's hunting opportunities. If I have the capacity to do it, and maybe there's a way that we can do hunting together in the future for your charter, because I would love to do like a duck hunt in Florida. It's probably very similar to kind of the swamp duck hunting, coastal swamp, coastal duck hunting we have in Virginia, Carolina. Um, I have no doubt there's a lot of similarities because you're dealing with salt water more so, or brackish water, I would say. And it, that would, I wish people would go to Florida to do that because all the programming, like, I mean, people know about Florida fishing and that's great. And there are a lot of people who fish in Florida and, and it's going to continue. But maybe the people who have the power for image imagery and, and messaging can go to Florida, highlight the different places. So many people go to Florida for Osceola turkey. That's something right. that we see among people. So 
there is a draw, obviously, with that, but maybe people need to concentrate their efforts on actually showcasing it more, even beyond the Osceola, I think. And, and there's a way to do it. I think there's great marketing campaigns that can happen, um, independent of the FCW, or maybe through sportsmen like yourself. But don't lose hope. I think you guys could have more people take an interest and, and hopefully get a bigger seat at the table and, and get more access, too. Yeah, I hope so, too. I, I, I don't know if you've heard about the toll roads that went through, but last year, it was or two years ago, there was a big push to build these toll roads all the way up the state. And I didn't like I think it. I broke um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I didn't like the proposal. No, these haven't been built, but I didn't like this proposal. It was a $10 billion proposal to build toll roads oh. basically from Naples to Georgia. And oh. the state of Georgia's DOT said, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like, you're going to end a road in the middle of nowhere. So it's called the road to nowhere. It's kind of the nickname it got. And um, I spoke against it actually, even though I'm, I'm not again, anti-growth. I just not, did not think it was our infrastructure is failing in so many places. You talked with Nyla some about sewage. Um, you've been down here and see like our infrastructure just has so many problems. I would rather us take care of some of the stuff we've got to fix before adding a new problem to the mix. But on that toll road bill, um, Senator Galvano proposed that. He was the president of the Senate, the outgoing president. And uh, they built these commissions to kind of study it. And so I think roughly there were 130, 150 people appointed to it. Um, and they were just basically stakeholder groups. They were, they were mayors of municipalities or county commissioners. or But in all those groups, there was not a single sportsman's group sitting at the table, whereas we had Audubon, we had Everglades Trust, we had Sierra Club, we had, you know, we had lots of environmental groups sitting at the table, but we did not have a sportsman's group represented there. And that, that really takes me off because it's like you've used our funding for so long. If you went back historically, you've talked about it before, if you went back historically, a lot of conservation was built on the back of sportsmen, but sportsmen were the only one that wanted to show up and care about it. And I'm not marginalizing John Muir in that conversation. I'm just saying you went back to the Roosevelt, the Grinnells, the historically Aldo Leopold was a hunter. If you go into that detail, it's like you used us to get where we are today and now you don't need us anymore. So you're going to not let us sit at the table. And I'm not okay with that. That's not a cool move. And I was not cool with that coming down from the legislature that way. Legislature that way uh, really bothered me deep in my, in my core as a sportsman. Uh, we have a lot of folks in Florida, and, and some of them, like I said, are not in office anymore. We have a lot of folks in, folks in Florida that portend to be sportsmen. Would have been nice to see them try to get someone with that voice at that table, and we were definitely excluded from that conversation. That's unfortunate. Yeah, toll roads can be a hit or a miss. I, I drove from, where was it, Jupiter to Yeehaw Junction, and the tolls were not working, so I had to be billed. I, I had cash, and I, I went the correct way. But, no, something was funky in Florida with the tolls. Like, it was great to drive, but, like, I don't think a state should be peppered with toll roads, you know, with so much natural beauty. It was just nice to drive the back roads for much of my journey from Orlando to Okeechobee and even oh, yeah. to, like, even to Jupiter. Like, just taking the already existing freeways, I think that's enough. You can repair that existing road. Repave it, whatever, retrofit it more sustainably, however you need to do it. Uh, just use, exi use existing roads to, and, and don't build upon more. Because I think that would look kind of ugly from Naples to Georgia. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that would, how that would be perceived. 
But yeah, hopefully you guys will demand more at the table and maybe use the existing caucus you guys have among the different kind of decentralized groups and maybe petition Tallahassee lawmakers to care and, and have your perspective heard on, on these timely and important issues. But Travis, is there anything else you want to add before I let you go? No, Gabby, I appreciate so much all you've been doing. Um, we, we've joked for, for years now that you ultimately want to end up in Florida one day. And, and exactly. I'm so happy you got, I'm so happy. I know you've been here before several times, but I'm, I'm so happy you got to see a different side of it uh, You know, on your last visit. I was so happy I got to see you and celebrate your birthday at Lighty. But I'm also really happy with um, all the content you've been producing around our state. Like, it's super exciting to see the ranchers and see the tribes and see someone like Nyla, who's so involved in the water quality discussion. It's super happy to see, I'm super happy to see uh, those voices being promoted. Um, and thank you for doing that. It's, it's super. Of we can talk about it down here, but when you have someone with, with your perspective and kind of your view you, you, from an outsider's standpoint, Thank you for sharing your platform with us. That's a that's a huge deal to us. And I, I know I speak for that collective of, of the team. And, and I, we talk about the team. I think everybody, all of us have mentioned everybody else over time, Mike and, and, and Nyla and uh, Miss Osceola and just the whole, the whole crew. Um, thank you for doing that for, for us and for the future. It was an honor. And I still have some photos I have to share. <laughs> There's so many more photos. But we got most of the video out there, and it was honestly, it was an honor. And I always try to keep an open mind, and I'm more sympathetic to documenting things that don't necessarily get the coverage they deserve, or maybe it's too complex for people to understand, or maybe it doesn't fit a certain narrative. But I think, in in line with obviously wanting people to critically think and to go beyond the pale and, and learn more beyond the subject, I was very happy to portrayed in the way that we did uh, through the podcast, through the video. We still have the agriculture video to still come out, of course. We wanted to split it up a little bit, but with the content we were able to procure, it was just so incredible, and I still look back on that week there and have fond memories, even as recent as it was, but it's, it's such a magical place, and you're right. You and, and some of the other stakeholders that we got to interact with, the aforementioned Nyla, Betty Alciola, Marshall, Mike, Nick, all these other different individuals, Matt, Brad, all of them, uh, they, they always say you have to experience, all of you have said you have to experience a place to truly understand it, especially with the Everglades, just seeing how it changes even as you go however many yards into it, deeper into the Everglades, you saw sawgrass, you saw all these different like plants. And I'm like, I didn't think it could have so many different tiers and levels of plants, like water hyacinths and then these like fuzzy looking, I forget what they're called off the top of my head, but all these different like fuzzy looking type of plants, like prehistoric looking plants. And then like your typical. Yeah, there's two types. It's, it's, there's two it's, types it's, of cypress trees down there. And it, yeah. yeah it's, 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 a, it's, it's a unique place. I'll tell you this. I will leave you with this. How about this? This is a great little anecdote that I love. Um, Florida leads the country in coffins exported. And the reason what? I love this, and I got, I got this from a, a friend of mine, Chad Crawford, who hosts a TV show called How to Do Florida. Um, he, he told me this story. But I love this anecdote. It's because people move here, but when they die, when you die, you kind of want to be buried where your home is. And one of the things that I think every person that you just named, Brad and Mike and, 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 and Matt Pierce and Nyla, 
those people all love this place. We, I, I say we love this dirt. We love this water. Like this is our dirt and we want people to come here. We were happy when people want to move here. Nyla's not from Florida. She's from Washington state, but she loves this dirt as part of her own. And I wish we didn't leave the country and coffins exported. I wish people wanted to, they loved it so much here. They didn't just come for our sunshine and our, and our no state income tax. They fell in love with it and wanted to be like, this was their home. This was their place where they felt like their bones needed to rest. Um, that's a powerful thought to me. And I, I feel like that's how we have to kind of change our mindset in Florida. It's where it's not just a, it's not just a stop before you're done. It's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's home. It's regenerative. Your, your presence. Exactly. I, I like that. That's, I mean, as morbid as that sounds, it is interesting. And yeah, I noticed that with a lot of people true yeah they don't want if they live in florida they are buried somewhere else i think rush limbaugh was buried in his native state of missouri interestingly enough, yep. not because he didn't like florida but maybe there's obviously an attachment to being buried in missouri his family is probably buried there so yeah i, I, I did it and i respect it but this is yeah. our home this is where this is where my ashes will be spread is around this state it'll be spread in lake okeechobee and in lake Kissimmee and in charlotte harbor and i like this is this is where I'll be forever. I just want you to love it the way I love it if you want to come be a part of it. I don't think that's a difficult ask. I think many people, once they get acclimated to Florida, they can. And if I were to make that step one day, I certainly would because I've acclimated to Virginia from California. Everyone, I've been here for so long, people think I'm from Virginia now because I've become so well-adjusted to the state. I'm not changing what Virginia is. I'm trying to make it better. But I'm not trying to change Virginia for what it was known to be, kind of a pro-business, welcoming place. It's a sportsman's paradise, too, one of the oldest places in the country for hunting and fishing, obviously. Lots of vested traditions here. But I think that's what some people transplants fail to grasp. And obviously, there's a political conversation behind that. But I think even when it comes to sure. heritage, outdoor heritage, I think, yeah, that's ho hopefully something people can take away from hearing your thoughts on this and Anytime they go into a place, you go there to learn, to really have an open mind, not to impose your views. I also think we've talked about this before, too. So many people stick their nose into other states' affairs without knowing exactly what goes on. So, like, people yep. may be in Montana and they may want to tell Alaska, you have to do this or you have to do that. Or uh, from Montana or, or Wyoming and you, you're telling people in Florida how to live out. So, yeah, I think sometimes there's a lack of understanding, humility desire to actually learn about different places and understand that one-size-fits-all approaches don't translate to different states. But the reason why we're so multifarious and why federalism, I think even from a conservation standpoint, is so important because every state has different needs and wants and concerns and demands. Uh, what works in one state is not going to work in another. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Thanks for doing this. Yes, of course. Why don't you plug in your all your social media accounts, your podcast links for people to connect with you? Plug that away. Yeah, uh, at Cast and Blast FL is our podcast. Um, and if you go back to season two, episode one of Conversations, I think that was the last time we had Gabby on. If you want to go hear Gabby again, telling some of her story. Um, but you can find us castandblastfl.com. We're on all the social medias, although I can say that I don't keep up with my Twitter as much, but at Cast and Blast FL on all the social medias. Um, 
we all, I'm also Travis Thompson on Twitter, Instagram, and I'm pretty easy to find on Facebook. Uh, I, I know there's a bunch of Travis Thompson's and I'm not the rapper. There is a, there's a rapper out there that I've got confused for. So uh, I know Gabby always gets confused with Gabby Hoffman, the actress. And, um, you know, I, I always give you credit for the stirring scene that you had in Field of Dreams, one of my favorite movies, but you, you never seem to take credit for it. Uh, but yeah, I'm not Travis Thompson rapper. I've never been on Kimmel's show or anything else. So um, don't tweet me. I get I get multiple tweets a week about dropping a new album, and I can't. I, you guys don't want that. Nobody wants that. That would be terrible. Maybe you can. But yeah, maybe you can rap about waterfall. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it would be what the kids call a banger. So no, check me out on any of the social medias. Uh, we, we're we're pretty, uh, we, and we try to share Gabby's stuff we can and vice versa out there. So I appreciate uh, thank you, you again, Gabby, for having it, having us. Yeah, you guys are my favorite Florida-themed. I mean, I like, I've started to listen to Brad Ferris's Between the Beaches, too, but I think you guys, both of you have excellent podcasts, regional podcasts, and I try my best to listen every week. Great content, especially Cast and Blast, the rapport you have with, obviously, your wife, your co-host, Nate, and some of the guest hosts that come on. And I love that you guys also talk about other extraneous type of content, but you guys have a great podcast. I appreciate your friendship and just, just you're convincing me to, to learn to examine Florida in a very different light than I used to when it comes to conservation issues. I already loved the state beforehand, but you gave me a whole different look into the state. And with all your work and convincing, we were able to execute and come down and film, and it was magical. I really loved it. And even in the short time we got to catch up, I just got to learn something new from our time together. So thank you, Travis, again, for coming on, sharing the latest in water quality issues, the victory you had, thoughts about Florida and, and so much, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Gabby. What did you think of our conversation with Travis Thompson? Let me know. Sound off on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. Leave us some reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are played, and tell us what you'd like to see more of. Make sure you are connected with us. You can connect with me personally on my different social media accounts and check the show notes for anything you may have missed or maybe subjects that Travis touched upon you have an interest in, but go listen to his podcast. It's one of my favorite Florida-centric podcasts, and I know you'll enjoy it too. They have a great crew hosting every week. So check out Cast and Blast Florida. Tomorrow we are joined by Cable Smith of Lone Star Outdoor Show. And we talk about a wide range of issues. That's a longer conversation than I normally do. But we were having fun talking about all the different things happening in firearms, hunting, national parks. So don't miss that conversation. And when you're listening to our interview with Cable Smith, if you head over to the end, I'm going to reveal who our big guest is for this week. We're going to be having a really cool lawmaker come on to the podcast. I'm recording that. Tuesday tomorrow and you don't want to miss it so I will give you guys a little teaser as to who I am bringing on for Wednesday so don't miss out and we're going to have some cool guests we're going to talk more about national parks we'll have Shoshana Weissman who is someone I've known in politics for a long time but she's a hiking and national parks enthusiast and she has a lot to say about government closing national parks to the public when it is really safe for people to go outdoors now and we'll hopefully have maybe Representative Lisa McLean to talk about her bill to prevent COVID closures from 
closing national park opportunities for the public. So stay tuned for those. We're going to have some interesting conversations coming up.